Welcome to Have You Heard, the AABP podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich, and we are going to follow up our heat stress in feedlot cattle. And today we're going to be talking about heat stress in dairy cattle, which we should probably plan for far before June. Uh, but our guest today uh, is Dr. Gordy Jones. Gordy, do you want to introduce yourself, please? Hey, welcome, uh, AABP World. I'm Gordy Jones, and as all of you are, I'm a veterinarian. Um, first and foremost, I probably, I'm a veterinarian that got tired of my best day being my dairyman's worst day. So uh, I decided to move upstream, and instead of pulling cows out of the river, I decided to help make guard guardrails to help them fall, not fall into the river. So uh, I've become a nutritionist. Uh, in 1986, for AABP and the Bovine Practitioner, I wrote an article on the veterinarian's opportunity to improve the cow's environment. So all the way back to 1986, I was one of the first voices for cow comfort. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'm the first guy to use that word, cow comfort. So a while ago, I was often called the father of cow comfort. And at this age, I'm now called the grandfather of cow comfort. <laughs> and... Uh, I've helped design one of the largest dairy complexes in the United States at Fair Oaks with that visitor center that pre-COVID hosted half a million people a year coming to see what large-scale dairying looked like. So my experience crosses everything from uh, 12-cow dairies all the way up to the large dairies of North America today. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to consult in over 40 countries around the world wow. and be a voice for cows and their comfort. Well, I uh, I love that, uh, Gordy, and, and you may not remember this, but a young veterinarian named Fred Gingrich started his veterinary career in Visalia, California, and I remember one evening you gave a talk to us. This would have probably been in 95 or 6 on cow comfort, and that had a tremendous impact on me. I remember that dinner meeting uh, at a steakhouse in Visalia, uh, where you talk to us about cow comfort and designing proper free stalls. And I thought to myself, man, I, I want to, I want to do that kind of thing. Um, so many years ago, but that had it, you had an impact on me very early in my career, Gordy, as I'm sure you have on many people. So I thank you for that. Let's, let's kick this off and talk about the thermoneutral zone for dairy cows and what goes into that. It, it, it obviously you've said you've been all over the globe. Uh, and we have different uh, weather regions globally with different humidity. Uh, explain to us how that impacts things. Well, you know, the surprise of many, many years ago was to find out that cows aren't thermal neutral where we are. Our happy place is 70 degrees, 72, whatever. And, um, and so we set those environments for our comfort, and we're already into the edge of heat stress for cows. So if you had to pick thermal neutral or you had to pick, I, I often give talks where I ask the audience, like an auctioneer, what's the temperature cows most happy at, if I could? And and 20 years ago, that would start at 70. Today, it starts at about uh, when people are guessing where they're happiest at. It'll start at 55, 60, 40 degrees. And she's just happy just above freezing. So at 40 degrees, four degrees Celsius, that's her probable favorite temperature. 
she was born, uh, a lot of my friends make fun of me for saying this, but she was born during the Ice Age. And she's the last of a group of animals from the Ice Age, really large animals from the Ice Age, excuse me, from the Ice Age called Pleistocene megafauna. And her thermal neutral range, if you will, her comfort range goes from about 68 degrees Fahrenheit and drops down into the 20 degrees Fahrenheit range. And below that, she compensates simply by eating more. But above that range, she compensates by eating a lot less and breathing a lot more. So uh, that puts us there. And so what I like to remind our farmers in the winter is that on that day when you're most cold, just above freezing, she'd almost like the curtains open on your freestyle barn. Mm. Yeah. And uh, does, uh, you know, again, you've been all over the world talking about cow comfort, probably seen many different types and sizes of cows. Do do uh, do any of those factors go into uh, heat stress in dairy cows, such as breed, uh, uh, their body condition, or or where the parity, where they are in their lactation cycle? Oh, Fred, that sure does. But and size is a matter. So as we get really large cows, they get heat stress quicker, or we get high producing cows who are eating more. Their dry matter intake is up, and their tolerance to heat stress is down. From a breed standpoint, our jerseys, and if you think about our first calf heifers and, and uh, bred heifers, they're, they're more heat tolerant, if you will, to heat stress than our large Holsteins. So the jerseys have one up on the Holsteins in that they can range a few degrees, handle heat a little bit easier than our big cows. Uh, they've got a larger surface area to mass equation, so that helps them. So um, it's it's about size, and then it's about dry matter intake and their performance. So as they're milking more, eating more, they're less heat tolerant. And what what happens to a cow when she's heat stressed? Well, she turns on a whole bunch of systems, and the first one she turns on is um, increased respiration. She's trying to blow off heat through evaporation, and because as we all know as veterinarians, there's not much sweating in a cow little bit on her nose and whatnot, but she has no ability to evaporate other than through her lungs. So by increasing respiration rate, she can start to blow off heat. And then she slowly decreases intake, and uh, and that affects all performance, whether it's rate of gain or whether it's milk production or anything like that. And uh, let's touch a little bit on repro. It seems like veterinarians spend a, a significant amount of time on reproduction on dairy farms. And, and uh, uh, most of us are aware that, that uh, heat stress does affect a cow's reproduction efficiency. So talk a little bit about that. What can we expect in terms of reproduction? Well, you know, that was the hidden loss for us. As as we started to do things 20, 25 years ago for heat abatement, uh, some of the work from uh, the late John Smith and Joe Harner and uh, Mike Brook over at K-State, as we started to look at it, we certainly were aware of the milk losses we incurred. But when we looked deeper into uh, the losses of heat stress, every time I look at it on a large dairy, the reproductive loss equals to or exceeds the milk loss. 
So it's pretty easy to show somebody a five ten, a five pound, a ten pound loss in milk per day over heat, and uh, come up with a mathematical formula for that loss. But you can then double that with reproduction. It mm. it it affects our uh, it affects our fertility and then our uh, our increased days in milk. So that loss is usually double our milk loss, and uh, and you can almost take that to the bank. That's a good number for our, our listeners and veterinarians to be able to communicate to farmers because they obviously see, you know, the drop in milk and, and, and can figure at, that out. So double that, and uh, that's uh, where our repro is. Um, let's talk about the different groups of cattle on a dairy farm, Gordy, and then our priorities for mitigating heat stress. Okay, so... So because milk losses are our first heat heat stress indication and and I'm going to back up a little bit mentally mm-hmm. it depends on if I'm in the eastern half of the country that is from like the I29 corridor North Dakota South Dakota all the way down coming east our two ways to cool cows would involve either cooling the air around cows or cooling the cow directly and so the groups of cows that we want to cool are our high-performance, high-production cows as we're looking to it. But I'll back that up further. In, in, in when I'm looking at groups, so east of the Mississippi, east of the I-29 corridor, the only way I know how to cool cows is, is to cool cows themselves. And that involves water, a lot of water. It involves soaking the cows. And because of that, it depends on the dairy's ability to handle that water in the manure. So now for groups of cows or places I cool first, if I'm limited in the water I can use, that group of cows I'm going to cool first are going to be in the holding area. I'm going to cool cows as they're collected two or three times a day in the holding area where they're building up a larger heat load, soak them there, put air speed on them, and then also try and soak them on exit from the holding area. As I have more water to use on the farm, I'm going to head right to the high production pens, the breeding pens, and then start soaking there. And then we go across the whole dairy. And uh, early on, we didn't do much cooling in the dry cow groups. We thought, okay, they've got an eight-week rest. They're not eating as much. There's not much effect. But new data from uh, the group at Florida is showing not only are, are dry cows in need of cow cooling, but when you cool a dry cow, you're cooling her, you're cooling her calf, and you're cooling the zygotes that the calf carries. The new epigenetic stuff is so cool that, that we can cause stress to three generations in the dry cow pen. So I've upped my game in trying to tell dairymen that we need to cool in the dry cow pen too. So really, Fred, there's almost no area in the dairy where I'm not trying to cool a cow. Yeah. And you mentioned a little bit, uh, Gordy, about uh, um, sprinklers, soakers, and moving air over cows. I I remember when I moved back to Ohio from California in the mid-90s, and almost none of the farms that I was on had um, sprinklers. They didn't cool the cows. Talk a little bit about why it's important to get water on the cow instead of just putting a fan over her. Okay. If I can have one nitpick for myself, I want to keep using that word soaker. 
Yes. Because if, I, if I use the word soaker, I put a, a, a vision in your mind that we're soaking cattle. I'm not misting cattle. I'm not sprinkling cattle. I'm soaking cattle. I want them wet to the bone. And, uh, and that, that, that amount of water is that I need a lot of water to soak cows. And in fact, a dairyman's first inclination across the world is that they put up another fan. Yes. And, and the data from uh, Mike Brook, from uh, Joe Harner and the late John Smith show that, that fans almost do nothing without the evaporative power of soaking water on cows. We can, we don't drop their temperatures much with a fan and we don't drop their uh, breathing rates until we've added water to the equation. And, uh, and then, so once that cow is wet, then that's where that fan is that, is that heat dissipates off that cow. That's where our fans come into play. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct in that we need her soaked. And then the minimum data that I've seen from uh, Dr. Nigel Cook at UW is in that two and a half to four and a half miles per hour airspeed over cows. Most of us want much more air than that in the five to seven mile per hour range over a cow in speeds. So in the naturally ventilated barns that we've added fans to the feed lanes and fans to the beds, uh, we can achieve that airspeed over the beds, over the feed lane, and then soak those cows. And, um, you know, I've got a, a set of, based off the John Smith data set, that between 70 and 75 degrees, I'm soaking most of my cows two minutes on and 13 minutes off. So I've got a four times an hour soaking schedule. As I get above 75 to 80 degrees, I'm running two minutes on and eight minutes off. So a 10 minute, every 10 minutes, we're soaking that cow completely. Above 80 degrees, we're soaking two minutes on and six minutes off. And then if I break 90 degrees in your area, I'll soak them 50% of the time, two minutes on, two minutes off. And um, people have asked often whether I use the temperature or THIA, uh, the THI, the heat, the heat index. Mm-hmm. And I'm comfortable just simply using temperatures. But with today's new smartphones, you can find out the THI near you real quickly. And if you want to use those charts, that works just as well. But the answer is somewhere above 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Let's start getting cows wet. And are there any specifics, uh, Gordy, that you look at when we're talking about a naturally ventilated barn and the producers hanging fans over the over the freestall beds uh, and over the 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 uh, bunk above the locks? Are there specific things that producers should keep in mind when they're installing those fans? Some real good rules of thumb. There's all kinds of data sets to, to look up. The old Monsanto data set on, uh, I think Cargill now, Jeff, Dr. Jeff Brosey from AABP and Cargill has a wonderful data set, uh, heat stress, a heat stress relief handbook. Yeah. It was orig- originated from, uh, the Monsanto group. And, um, that's got some wonderful guidelines for it, but, but if I'm starting fans, I'm starting trying to do it where they lay first and then the feed lanes. And then as I'm putting fans up, a three-foot fan, I want every 30-foot. A four-foot fan, I want every 40 feet for quick rules of thumb. But we have enough tools in our tool chest, if you will, 
to get air speeds and fine tune that. And then companies like JD Fan Company, like uh, VES Artex together, they're wonderful resources for us as veterinarians to go, okay, where do we put our fans and how many do we put in here? But without soaking, remember, those fans aren't doing much. Yeah, yeah. And and then you, you mentioned holding pens a bit. So you soak the cows in the holding pens and then you have fans and then you mentioned a soaker as they exit. Are those usually on um, electronic eye where that cows, where those cows are exiting? Talk a little bit about what you look at when you're looking at a holding pen and how long should cows be in there? Cows <laughs> should be in there a minimum. Our, to get the best performance out of cows, I want them out eating, drinking, or sleeping for 20, point, 20 plus hours a day. So that that means the trip to the parlor, in the holding area, in the parlor and return is less than three and a half hours a day would be my max away from food, water, laying down and cooling there. But once we get them in the holding area, I would like to blow air into their faces, have the cows come upstream into the air and then soak them on a for me at our holding areas. We're doing two minutes on and two minutes off if you will, to get them wet coming in. And then on on exit, on the small dairies that can't add much water to their manure system, you do want to soak those cows. That, That heat stress relief handbook from Monsanto and now Cargill has got some wonderful ideas, all set up on electric eyes or on wands as they pass. And they're using simple soaker um, simple uh, backyard sprinkler systems to just get them wet as they come out. Yeah, and uh, we'll include some links to those uh, resources that Gordy is mentioning. I remember using that Monsanto book a lot when I was in practice, uh, providing it to producers as well. It's just a really good resource. You know, they have the sprinkler type nozzle types in there and all that it's it's a uh, um it's a really really great resource and you can uh um get creative on what you're using to get water on a cow's back so we'll try to include some of those uh some of those links and gordy i know that you have designed a lot of different types of barns natural ventilation, tunnel ventilation, cross ventilation. Talk a little bit about the difference in those and some of the just big considerations when when you're looking at that. Okay. I'm reminded that the late, as at my age, it seems like everybody's late. (laughs) (laughs) The late Bill Bickert out of Michigan State, uh, you know, talks about facilities, and I've, I've adapted that into all facilities or tools, tools that let you implement your plan. And two or three of the hardest decisions in in designing a new facility or retrofitting the old facility is how are we going to ventilate it? Our choices have increased from natural ventilation to mechanical. The mechanicals now have literally three flavors. Our first flavor probably comes out of the old Tysol barns where we did start uh, with with wind tunnels in, in Tysol barns. Big fans at the end, draw the air through. Our cows went up on milk. One of the notes that you want to have as a veterinarian is that fresh air increases dry matter intake. So ventilation on these new facilities or retrofitting is huge. Well, as the wind tunnels came, our dairies got bigger and bigger and longer. Rick Stowell, who's at uh, 
He's now in Nebraska. He was one of Bill Bickert's ag engineering students. Shows that in a wind tunnel, we exceed the wind tunnel's capacity somewhere at 400 to 600 feet long in its ability to remove pollution from the air. Well, that led us to the cross vents where we're drawing air across the barns. Mm. So now we're drawing them in a cross vent less than 400 feet generally. And those are clean air on one side, exhaust on the other. And then the newest ventilation system we came up with in Wisconsin was, okay, we're not going to suck air through the barn. We're going to blow air in positively. So we have two negative systems, a long wind tunnel, a cross vent, and now the positive, the hybrid all-season positive barns, where we're putting fans on the outside row of the barn and blowing air in towards the feed lane in the middle. These barns work best on a four-row model, and um, they, 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 the fan does both jobs then. It not only exchanges air, but it also gives airspeed at the cow living space. So um, we'll give a, a – you and I will give a link for uh, some – naturally mechanically ventilated barns and none of the naturally ventilated barns are really being done anymore without fans without fans over the feed lane and fans over the beds and then even the wind tunnels and cross vents to get the air back down to the cows we've been adding fans over the bed space so um, in all of these it takes air speed and soaking again yeah. On on those barns, Gordy, that are not naturally ventilated, uh, the openings on those barns, do they have a uh, an open ridge? What about the eaves and all that? Well, on the wind tunnels, you're, you're opening your inlet is at one end and you're sucking air all the way through the barn and exhausting. The cross right. vents, you're sucking across. On the new all-season hybrid barn, we're blowing air in. And yes, that barn has to have an exhaust. And that exhaust has to be an open ridge that's big enough to allow 40 to 60 air exchanges per hour. That is, we're moving the total volume of the barn into there in one minute and moving it out. So those holes in the roof need to be three to four foot big enough, three, four feet across to let the air out without building up a high positive static pressure that reduces the fan efficiency. Yeah, that's that's super interesting, and and uh, going to remind our listeners check out those links because it'll provide some more details about uh, those different types of barns. Let's talk a little bit about water, uh, Gordy, and a cow's need for drinking water uh, during times of heat stress. Uh, how important is that, and what are some things that veterinarians and producers need to look at when they're uh, discussing access to water? Well, so the, Fred, it goes without saying, I, I feel like this is, uh, my, my son would go, dad, I can't believe you make a living talking on some of this because it comes <laughs> under the university of duh. But, but it, access to water, access to free water. I'm going to say one thing for veterinarians across the country. The single biggest error I've seen is in the 120 to 160 cow groups. Let's back up for a minute and talk about cow behavior. Yeah. All of us know that cows are social animals. 
that are aliment-centric. Aliment-centric means we eat together, we sleep together, we, we do things together. And, and a cow can recognize about 100 other cows. So when our social group is less than 100 cows, most of us understand that we need, we need four to six inches of water space, linear water space per cow, and that we need two sites so that the alpha cow can't guard a waterer. Well, so I think as I'm going through dairy barns today, I'm seeing plenty of linear water space for general cows. My biggest problem is in this 120 to 160 cow group that we're starting to see across across the Midwest and whatever, maybe in a robot box robot barn or whatever. Well, there we've got more cows than in a single social group. So these cows will subdivide into two behavioral groups. Let's call them the Bloods and the Crips. <laughs> now, now we have two social groups that don't interact with each other. Well, each social group needs a waterer. Uh-oh, most of these barns have a waterer at both ends and a crossover in the middle. And so we'll have three waters and 120, 140, 160 cow pen. And what will happen is the bloods, one group will adapt two waters as their social area. And then the alpha cow of that can't guard both waters. So they're fine. But the other, the crips, if you will, only have one waterer. Well, they have enough linear inches, perhaps, but they don't have two separate spots for the boss cow. Mm -hmm. So as I'm looking at the 120 cow, 140 cow pens, I need a fourth waterer in there. And as cows stand to waterer, as we're just talking over a podcast, think of a cow as she's drinking or eating. Her body without her head is two meters long, six feet long. So as a cow stands at the waterer, I need another six feet behind that cow to get cows both to feed and then also to bed. So a crossover needs to be water plus four meters. Now, if I put a second waterer in the middle of this so that we now have four waterers per pen, I now need two meters to stand at the water, two meters to get cows back and forth, and two meters to stand at the other waterer. So I need six meters plus waters to have enough space for cows to get two bed, two feed, and drink, along with those four to six inches of linear water space per cow. If you're a vet standing there at the barn looking, one of my quick rules of thumb to find out you don't have to take out your tape measure is wherever a single cow can drink, think of nine more cows behind her. So as I look and say, okay, three cows can drink there together, that's 30 cows worth of watering space. And I can go through a barn quickly and determine whether or not I have enough watering space that way. Or let's get out the tape measure and do it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, that's so important. And I, I, I hope that our listeners, uh, when you get out of your trucks this morning and get into those dairy barns, look around and, uh, uh, Pay attention to what's going on uh, with the cooling of those cows, their access to water, access to feed, and access to a bed. So so uh, check into those today while you're doing your farm calls. Gordy, 
talk a little bit about maybe some feeding management. You know, we, we know that dry matter intake, intake drops, but if we have good um, uh, heat abatement, but, you know, maybe we're not get maybe it's a, a, you know, a big heat wave, we're not getting even cooling at night. What are some things that maybe uh, producers can do, veterinarians can talk to their clients about, uh, you know, some considerations for feeding management? Okay, when I'm looking at, at bottlenecks in herds, if I see a, a, an 80-pound herd, a 90-pound herd, whatever pound of milk herd there is, one or two or three of those cows should be two, doing 2x, 2x the milk of the herd. So if the herd's at 70 pounds of milk per cow, I want to see a 140-pound cow. If I've got a 90-pound herd, I want to see a 180-pound cow. Think about that lactation curve, if you will, and where the average cow is. If you're not seeing those cows that are running twice the average production, you're restricting intake at the time when a cow wants to eat the most. Let's back up for a minute. Let's back up for a year. Let's back up for a thousand years. I told you she was born on the edge of a glacier. Our wild cow came to us as a slow-moving prey species. That is, she can't outrun her major predators. Her major predators at night were the cats. The cats ruled the night, and a cow who went out at night would die. And the other predator was us in the daytime. So cows develop behavior as a slow-moving prey species called crepuscular. That is, they're low-light creatures, dawn, dusk. So a cow wants to eat the most in the morning. We are underfeeding cows at exit from parlor across the world. We're not delivering enough food at exit from parlor to the highest producing cows. Jose Santos at Florida has, uh, has repeatedly shown that a cow wants to eat more than 30, 35% of her average daily intake, her daily intake at first meal in the morning. And if we're delivering only 50% of the average intake, so the cows are eating 60 pounds, you're putting 30 pounds of dry matter there, that 140, 160, 180, 200-pound cow that we can now get with today's genetics doesn't have enough feed in front of her in the morning. If you're a dairy veterinarian and you're walking the barn to go look at uh, the morning preg checks, and you see that semicircle where a cow has eaten all that she can, well, she hasn't eaten her last bite because she can't eat, reach her last bite. That last bite, even under today's feed costs, uh, the last pound of dry matters were 12 to 15 cents, and today's milk price is getting us 24 to 25 cents a pound. So that last pound of dry matter intake at 15 cents cost will yield two and a half pounds of milk. Now 25 and 25 is 50 and 12 more cents is 62 cents. So for a 15 cent increase, it's four to one on the last bite. And when you see that semicircle where a cow's eaten all she can in the morning, you have a cow that went to bed hungry. So I need dairymen, your dairymen, to deliver more than 50% of the average dry matter intake at exit from parlor in the morning. That's about 60%. And then keep it pushed up so that our cow can get that last full bite in the morning. 
and go to bed with a full tummy. Yeah, those are great tips, Gordy. And and one thing that I have learned when I was in practice from uh, some of our uh, um, older AABP members like Gordy is just what you can observe on a farm. I think that oftentimes we get so wrapped up with what we're doing, our tasks, uh, our preg checking, et cetera, um, is that we we don't stop and observe and you can learn so much and offer so much useful advice to dairy producers by doing that. And how about monitoring? I think that there are uh, ways that veterinarians can help producers uh, make sure they're planning for heat stress at the right time of the year, but then monitoring. Are there things that veterinarians should be doing to, to monitor the heat abatement uh, strategies on dairies? Well, you know, the, the key to monitoring is, is John Fetro, the retired professor from the University of Minnesota. John said it best and said that, you know, he who, he or she who monitors and discovers the problem usually gets to offer the first solution. <laughs> so as a, as a practitioner, uh, I want you looking at their records. I want you looking at their daily milk. I want you looking at the feed bunk in the morning. If you see concrete in that morning after feed delivery before noon, a dairyman is losing last bites, losing opportunities. Uh, your chance as a dairy professional, as a dairy practitioner, is to expand your career, expand your impact on our dairyman by, by that simple observation. And uh, for me, monitoring intakes, butter fats, uh, reproduct. Obviously, you guys are monitoring the reproduction we're doing, but but our chances to delve deeper into the records are a chance to find a bottleneck and then offer solutions for those bottlenecks. So uh, in a simple podcast, it's hard, uh, hard to hard to tell you how we do it, but keep your eyes open. Yeah, great tips, Gordy. Uh, I could sit and chat with you for hours, but uh, really appreciate you participating in our podcast. I really want to challenge our listeners, as Gordy said, to expand your impact on dairy farms through observation. As you're walking those dairies today, look around. Uh, make sure that you're not giving up, that that producer is not giving up that last bite. Uh, as Gordy indicated, that's a four to one return on their uh, feed costs by encouraging those cows to take that last bite. Uh, and let's start. I really like that tip from Gordy about using the word soaker. They're not sprinklers. They're soakers. Let's soak those cows. Do not forget their access to water. Uh, look and make sure, especially if the uh, pen size is more uh, than 100 plus cows, make sure that they are uh, offering enough water trough space. Make sure that those fans are blowing enough air, that they're clean, that they're installed properly, that they're working uh, to cool those cows after they've been soaked. Uh, check out those cows in the holding pen and as they exit that holding pen. And then another really good uh, rule of thumb that Gordy talked about was make sure those cows are not away from their home base, their their uh, their food table and their bed uh, more than three and a half hours per day total. And uh I like how you said you're with a father and now grandfather of cow comfort, Gordy, because it is so important for veterinarians uh, to speak about that cow's living conditions every single day. And we need to be comfortable in talking to our producer clients about making sure that that cow is comfortable. Uh, we obviously understand that it 
is a return on investment when those cows are comfortable. We all know that, but it's also the right thing to do. And I believe Ken Nordland always used to say, who will speak for the cow? So I'll challenge all of our veterinary listeners. You can do that today. Thanks so much, Gordy. Hey, thanks for having me on and uh, be safe out there, people. <laughs> 